You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 212 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. We are brought to you today by GameMat.eu for pre-painted uh, terrain, resin terrain, and MDF terrain, and STL files, and neoprene mats, and Panhandle3D.com. And they are your one-stop shop for your 3D printed terrain that you need. Event10 at GameMat.eu is 10% off, and Podcast10 is 10% off at Panhandle3D.com. We also have a small but very loyal and very sexy Patreon patron list. And uh, thank you all. I really appreciate it for supporting the show. And thank you for listening. Uh, If you want to help out, you can share the podcast. Tell a friend. You guys, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't have friends. But you could be like Jehovah's Witnesses and like go door to door and like try to preach the gospel of the Pemcron's Warhammer podcast. You could do that. I mean, that's that's pretty simple. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Well, we have a want that or want that not and a Tesseract mailbox kind of wrapped into one because Leroy Jenkins contacted me and asked me how the Leagues of Votan Turtle Van ranks on my list. So we go into that. And then we also have a real talk where we discuss the possible death of Warhammer Underworlds and what has gone so wrong with that game. So what have I been up to? Well, this week at the club, I had three of the best games of Brutality I think I've ever played. Connor and I played, and we had an absolute blast. We did the spaceship game and uh, Brutal Space, which is coming out by the end of the year. We're just playtesting some more stuff. And uh, the Brutal Space game was so close. I thought I had him. I really did. I thought I had him. Well, actually, I did have him most of the game. I was beating him on points most of the game. Uh, this planet was about to blow up, and we were both trying to get refugees off the planet so that they would side with us because they're valuable people. But then we're also trying to stop the other people from getting the refugees because we want them to side with us and not them. So it was interesting. It was a version of the merchant mission for Brutality, if you're familiar with that at all. So we had these giant explosions coming off the planet and hitting our ships nearby and all that. It was very fun. And I had him beat uh, for most of the game until the very last turn. And the planet, he was able to tie it 11-11 on the very last turn. And then at the end of each turn, the each game round, the planet, you know, you roll on it and see what it does. Well, an explosion came off the planet, like a magma explosion or whatever, and hit my ship and destroyed it, giving him another kill point. That was the very end of the last turn, and he won 12 to 11. It was so fun. It was very, very fun. We were both cheering and yelling in the game store. It was awesome. Then we played just a random boss battle from the narrative mission module. There's a bunch of things you just roll on to determine, like, a a monster and what his lair does to you and all that. And uh, uh, this guy, was. we used an old... uh, librarian dread to be the enemy and we were like going into this lair of this old crazy librarian dreadnought we were trying to get him so that we could capture him and and loot you know scavenge him or whatever and he we really i thought we had him beat in the very first half of the game the first two turns we were beating the crap out of him he lost over half his hit points in those first two turns but then the dice decided to just 
switch on us for the third and fourth turn, and he ended up killing three out of five of our people in a single turn on the third turn. So we had this guy from Dusk Tactics, Dust Tactics, and he's got these two big, like, power fists, and Connor painted them like boxing gloves, because it's supposed to be World War II era, and, you know, he's like, oh, I didn't hear no bell sort of thing, and he was just a basic melee, just a regular basic melee, and he charged into this monster, and they went toe-to-toe, round after round after round and what would save him because this monster this guy only had a save of two right so it's a 20 percent chance but this monster would hit him a bunch of times and he'd roll double ones which are both critical saves so he'd save four times basically he'd roll double ones and save it all and knock a couple hit points off the the monster then he would charge the monster and they'd strike and then him and the monster would both critically save it so then the monster would fight back with him and meanwhile there was another guy we had um uh one of the um Adeptus Mechanicus things. I think he's actually Skitari and he's got like the arquebus the long rifle that was the other guy that was left and uh, they were both shooting and assaulting him. And he just, man, he went toe-to-toe with this monster. It was so epic. And finally, he killed the monster. The very last turn, he actually killed the monster. And I was like, wow, this guy is a basic melee. And it just goes to show that everybody loves to take upgraded models for brutality. But if the dice are on your side, man, the regular guys, the basic melee support fast range, they can kick some butt as well. And then finally, we had a little bit of a rematch. Um, If you recall, a couple weeks ago, we played a narrative game where we went, uh, the Count and Sesame Street guys hired some mercenaries to help them infiltrate the Count's castle and get it back from this vampire, which is the centaur vampire character for Soul Blight. And uh, remember, the Count was just like whooping ass left and right. I mean, he was just backhanding people and he just beat the crap out of this boss. So then we decided that, because TJ had his soul blight there, and we're like, oh, we need a monster. So I grabbed that same boss, and I was like, okay. So we have the Count in this narrative. The Count hired us to go hunt down this guy and just keep him in check, knock him down a peg again in his own little cave where he, wherever he's staying. And sure enough, the, the boxer guy, a basic melee whooped some butt again now he did actually die in that game but he took like half the hit points off this monster and he's a basic he did way better than any of our upgraded melee people did and i was like connor you gotta name this guy like you gotta name him you gotta finish painting him he did fantastic it was a really good game it was one of those nights where you just you walk away and you're just really in high spirits like you just you just had a blast and you had fun with your friend and you walk away extremely happy. And that's the way that was. Something else that's going on is twice this week, I told you last week that we were going to start playing a simplified D&D with my two youngest daughters, and I thought they'd be interested in it. Well, they are super interested in it. So here is some tips on how to do this with your kids. Um, mine are, these two that I'm, I'm playing with are um, six and eight. And to make it special, we went to Michael's and bought a faux leather-bound book, and it's got lines in it and all that, and we bought a, sp- a fancy pen, and we're going to journal the whole thing so that we have the story written down. I may have mentioned that last week, but, yeah, I think I did, because I drew a grid on the inner cover of it to make a map, so we will draw every day, one square is one day travel, as we get to different places you can slowly fill out the map and you explore the whole map and it looks really cool and it's in this keepsake little nice book. 
So the first game went very well. Uh, I know you don't really care what happened in their game, so I will just briefly say that they fell in a well, and they had to figure out how to get out, and they fought some wolves, and then they found an old shack with this creepy old man. Come to find out the creepy old man seems pretty nice, and he's just a trapper hunter, and they kind of have an ally now. Then, when we were done playing that, that took an hour to play all that. When we were done, my the older of the two, Cron 3 of 4, said... Dad, can we play again tomorrow? And I was like, okay, we're not, we're not, I can't play this every single day, okay? They loved it. And she goes, well, well, can we, I said, what, what if we play it once a week? That would be enough for me. She goes, what if we play it twice a week? And I found that very heartwarming, that she wanted to play so bad that she was bartering with me to play. I said, okay, we'll try to play twice a week then. So we did manage to get a second game in. And uh, the brief overview of what happened there is they traveled with that man to the next town. They get attacked by bandits. They killed the bandits, looted them. And then the bridge to get to their destination where they wanted to go was out because of a troll was angry with all the, the traffic on that road. So then they had to find a way to cross the river. They tried several things, and eventually they did it. And then they ended up pickpocketing the troll, and they tricked him because they did some clever stuff. It's a bunch of problem solving. And, of course, I'm making them do all the mental math of, okay, your roll plus your modifier, that sort of thing. And um, it's just, it's a really good exercise for mental math. And they're getting better. Well, my six-year-old's getting better at mental math because of this game. My eight-year-old's already good at mental math. And, you know, also I'm causing them to read and stuff like that. So the the idea is that we go in their bedroom and we play and it's just us. If you have more than one child or two children, you'll know that a lot of times it's really important to do something with just one of your kids or just two of your kids or whatever. And it's much more special for them. It's much more special for you. Like I'm a family of six, right? So we're always kind of like a group or a gang. Everything we do, we eat dinner, we go somewhere. We're all like a big group of people. So it's nice to just pair off and go somewhere quiet and spend time with just, you know, one or two of your kids. And so far they have loved it. So that has been very heartwarming for me and we're making some good memories together, which is really what this is all about, right? Anyway, I am the last thing I have to say about my personal life and then I'll go is that I have got my last um, copy of the short story compilation and I'm doing like my sixth read through of the whole thing, 150 pages, and I have read 95 pages in two days in my spare time and I've found some minor little things, but it's still stuff I want to fix and I'm trying to make it as perfect as possible, and then I still will inevitably find something little here or there, but whatever. So I'm hoping to get that finished today. I'll read the last 50 pages, and uh, I have really been dragging myself through this, because if you've read the same 20 stories six times in the last year, you would be very, very sick of it. (laughs) Anyway, I'm excited to get that out the door, and then all my focus can go to Brutal Space. And then that'll be done by the end of the year. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. This is the Tesseract mailbox. And today I have an email from last year's Shorehammer Highlander champion, Leroy Jenkins. And he writes... Hello, dearest Pempcron. How about this for the face of Warhammer? And he sends me a picture of a man who is extremely muscular, and he is obviously a model, and he's 
got his shirt off and I mean, he's just a really ripped dude. And he writes, yeah, he plays That's Steven box. And I had to reply to him. I'm like, who's Steven box. And he goes, he's from some, I guess a podcast or something anyway, but he's uh seems like a nice guy. I have no idea anything about him, but sure. He could be the face of Warhammer. I, I guess <laughs> like he's ripped. Uh, anyway, he writes, can you please review the Votan Land Fortress? I would love to hear your thoughts on it. It feels less grimdark and more whalers on the moon. <laughs> I just watched that episode with my kids the other day, uh, Whalers on the Moon from Futurama, where they go to the moon amusement park, and it's like, we're whalers on the moon, we hunt with our harpoon, whatever. It was like a, uh, it was like the, um, What's the ride at Disneyland uh, about the different cultures and I don't know. I don't care. Anyway, I can't decide if I love the line or hate it. I'm definitely getting some for funsies, but not sure how I feel about it. Lovely Roy Jenkins. P.S. What army should I play for Shorehammer? I think I'll bring Votan to the narrative because they're silly. Can't decide between Death Watch or Sisters for the Highlander. So let's start with that question. Leroy, you won last year with the Sisters, right? So if you come back this year and you do really well with the sisters, everyone's going to be like, oh, he's a one-trick pony. He can only win with sisters. So what you need to do is you need to bring your Death Watch. And then, if you win, they'll be like, oh, wow, he's just an all-around excellent player. And that is what you should bring. Although I have a feeling you'll probably just end up with your sisters because you sisters are kind of like, you know, Necrons are kind of my army. Sisters is Leroy's army. And I don't know why. He just loves sisters. So, being that I'm sure you're not going to listen to my advice despite asking for it, um, his other question is the Votan Land Fortress. So, Leroy, you should know by now, I don't really like to review models until they come out. And the reason why is because they don't have a price point on them until they come out. So, the price can really make or break a model set. And... I'm going to tell you right now, the Hecaton Land Fortress, right, for the the Leagues of Votan, it is a cool-looking cool looking truck, ship, turtle van. It does definitely look like the turtle van, and I'm not mad about it. Like, I'm not, I'm, I am not upset about the turtle van look at all. Of course, I'm sure everyone's seen the memes where they painted it and colored it like the turtle van digitally, and I love it. I love everything about it. I got no problems. It can be the turtle van. Make it green. Make it tan. I do not care. I really like the look of it. I think they've done a fairly good job of making the uh, Leagues of Otan look like they are somewhat affiliated with the Imperium of Man, but having their own motif completely. I like a lot of their vehicles they've came out with. I will be reviewing them when they actually come out, but I will do this because I just can't say no to a Patreon patron. So, Leroy. I actually really like this. I think it's a little top-heavy looking, and if you don't know what the Hecaton Land Fortress looks like, it is, picture the turtle van, but it's jacked up, right? It's got, like, a lift kit on it, like they do with pickup trucks, and it's got six wheels, uh, four in front, two in back, which is an interesting choice. It's got doors on the side, kind of like Land Raider doors, and they actually look somewhat reminiscent of Land Raider doors, but it's just covered in guns. It's It's got... I mean, what I can assume, it has about four heavy bolter-style guns, right? And they're in, like, balls, like the, um... 
uh, balls like where the pee is stored. No, I'm kidding. The ball, the ball guns like on bombers and stuff from the Second World War. And then they've got another big gun in the back, and then they've got a massive cannon, like a magma something cannon on top. So this thing is covered in guns. You know, your Land Raider has two LAS cannons, and then it's got, you know, like a heavy bolter or whatever, right? Well, this thing's got way more guns than that. And I've already heard complaints about how great that massive cannon is, and it's like this nasty, nasty thing. I'm interested to know what the stats are on this thing, because that would also affect my like of it. Overall, I like the look of this, definitely. I think the wheels look just a tad bit too small for how big this thing is. And I think this thing definitely looks top-heavy. If a Carnifex slammed into the side of this, this thing would definitely be on its side, very similar to a turtle on its back. So maybe that's why it looks like a turtle. It's got a ton of guns. I don't know its carry capacity or anything like that, but I think it's a cool-looking model. I really do. Just like the Gene Stealer Cult stuff has its like its own look to it, even though it's supposed to be Imperium. This looks like it could be somewhat analogous to the Imperium, but it definitely has its own look. And I'm enjoying it. I I have no problem with it, whatever. It's got like a push bar on front. It's got a push bar on back. And it's got like railings all over it and like a glass dome and all sorts of stuff. So... I think the wheels are just a tiny bit small for it, but other than that, I love everything about this model. I just think it's really cool. And at first, I was like, when they first started just putting out, like, the troops, I was like, eh, I don't know. They kind of look too Space marine for me, but the more they've released, I'm like, okay, this definitely does have its own feel. So, I am not probably going to buy into this army, but if I were, it would be a want that for me. Now, having said that, this is the caveat. If this stupid-ass thing is $100, then absolutely no-go for me. I'm not interested whatsoever. And you know with GW's new price points and things like that, God knows it probably will be 100 bucks. But if it's like 60 bucks, I think is a steal. If it was 70 or 80 bucks, okay, fine, whatever. 100 bucks, nope, that's where I draw the line. So that is my thoughts on that. I may come back to it uh, once it has a price. I kind of doubt it, though, because I don't like to review something twice. But I think it looks great. All right. Thank you for writing in, Leroy. And uh, I'll wait to see whether or not you follow my advice, because my, my advice should be law. But we'll see. Later. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimp Cron. Well, if it isn't that time again, it's time for Real Talk with the Pimp Crown, and today we are discussing, is Underworlds dead? We will hear from some different players that play Underworlds and what they think has killed Underworlds, and is it truly dead? I noticed that the attendance for the Underworlds tournament at Shorehammer is like almost nothing, and just a, a few people. And uh, normally they have, I don't know, I think they had 10 people one year. I mean, Underworlds has never been super popular at our convention because most people play either 40K or X-Wing or AOS or whatever. But I noticed that it's like one or two people signed up this year. So I, I contacted the TO for that because uh, we have some of these smaller games. We have people uh, organize them. And he runs local tournaments and things in this area. And I said, hey, uh, I don't know why, but you've got really low attendance for this Shorehammer. And he goes, yeah, actually, I just went to Nova. And Nova had really low attendance for uh, Warhammer Underworlds as well. And if you're not familiar, just briefly, Warhammer Underworlds uses miniatures. But both players bring half of the battleboard 
with them. You choose like basically what your half of the board looks like, and you get different battle boards in different starter sets of the game. They come out with, uh, I'm going to forget all these names, but Harrow Deep was one of them, and Dire Chasm, I think, was one of them, and you know, they come out with different sets. The One of the problems I'm hearing is they come out with new sets all the time, and that is maybe one of the issues with this game. But basically, all of your actions are based on these cards, and they give you different abilities or whatever, and uh, that's basically how it's played. It's it's card mechanics, it's miniatures, and all of that. It's a, like a hex grid and whatnot. You have a small warband. So it's a skirmish game, but it's kind of like a pseudo-card, pseudo-board, pseudo-skirmish war game. And from what I'm understanding from my local guy and all of that, it's quite competitive, similar to Heroclix, similar to Magic the Gathering, and where it's a constant grind of trying to stay, stay up on the meta and trying to stay competitive, you constantly need to buy things. So let's dive in, and I found a really good thread on, of all places, Reddit, under the Warhammer Underworlds, and this is their discussion of it, and these are all people that play it. And they basically all say the same things that my friend Justin did. This post was from earlier this year, and it's titled, Is it just me or is popularity for Underworlds dropping rapidly? What's the future of this game? The game was in its prime two to three years ago. What is it now? A curiosity? A source of pretty models to paint and show off? You can clearly see something is happening just by how many new topics are started on this subreddit, and even less of them is discussion on deck building and tactics. New cards seem irrelevant. The main competitive format of having cards from the last two seasons only now seems to be very limiting, since while the game dropped in popularity and you don't really have the time to play all that many games to try to use these different deck builds. New mechanics and changes to existing systems seem to actually divide the player base strongly. And this season is so quiet, we have a first expansion warband a few months after main box got released. Is it all because of COVID? Because Season 4 had Warbands released too fast, so now they jumped into the other extreme and released content very slow. Because of dropping popularity, they now spend less time and funds to design further expansions. What is that is resulting in even lower popularity? What future for Underworlds do you predict? Somebody replies and says, Harrow Deep, one of their sets they came out with, Harrow Deep killed off interest for people around me. With lockdowns and COVID, we hadn't really had much time to play Dire Chasm. The war bands there, the war bands they were coming out with were certainly interesting, but the whole outdating with Horror Deep and change for the sake of change meant that few of us made the dive. Someone replies to that and says, very similar situation here. Beastgrave was the last release that had a good amount of traction before the pandemic took a lot of gaming out of the locals. Har Harrow Deep, however, was overall not well received. It seems half polished compared to everything that came before it. I have some hope that the Rivals decks will help with season one through three warbands and breathe some new life into them, but remains to be seen. And then finally, someone says, This is why my meta died. We were all playing Beastgrave and had all the warbands, but then suddenly no store in our area allowed to play for 16 plus months. Currently, only two local gaming stores in my city are allowed in-store play, when there used to be seven that I knew of. The game continued with tons of releases, so most people's cards had phased out. The local Blood Bowl League is gone too. Someone says, Wait, did I miss something? Does Harrow Deep invalidate previous versions? And then the reply is, the competitive side of the game, which is all people care about for the most part, deals with the last two seasons of the game. 
Now I'm going to pause this for a second. That's very similar to Heroclix and very similar to Magic, where Magic has your last, what, three sets or four sets are legal in tournaments, and Heroclix is very similar to that. I don't know exactly how many sets, but you are constantly forced to buy new product. They continue. Hero Deep comes out, which moves up the comp competitive legal seasons by one, but nobody actually played during COVID. So the stuff people had got moved out of the valid competitive setting before they had much time to play it. That's a really good way for people to lose interest fast. And then someone else complains about the massive price hike that Hero Deep got, that uh, Hero Deep got, and it turned a lot of people off. Now, next up is one of I think one of the best comments commentary on this game, and it's it's uh its current situation. I definitely feel like I've come to the end of my journey with the game, at least for now. I think the biggest problem was the combination of the pandemic with the game's business model. For the first year or so of the pandemic, I kept up with releases, but it started to feel absurd. I was spending loads of money on minis and cards that I couldn't play with and might not ever play with, purely because I was worried uh, worried out on missing stuff because of rotation. I played quite a bit online, though, through Vassal, which was good fun, but not enough to justify filling my house with unopened boxes. I think, though, that I probably would have fallen off eventually, even without the pandemic. The problem for me is that Underworlds is like a live-service video game. Keeping up on an even slightly competitive level means investing loads of time and money, and if you ever take a break, you just fall way behind or miss out on stuff. When you're enjoying it, it's fine, but if you ever get a bit bored of it, suddenly it feels like this huge obligation. I found that it was preventing me from getting into other miniatures games I was interested in because it felt like it was already sucking up all the hobby time I had available. It's a shame because I think the actual game, though not always perfectly managed, is maybe the best actual game GW has ever done. It doesn't have the narrative or chaos that makes people love Warhammer, Necromunda, etc., but as a pure strategic tabletop experience, it's fantastic. But it's just too big a commitment for how small a game it is. It feels like all GW's stuff is going that way these days, really, even for 40k, where you could still be playing with the same army you built 20 years ago, you're still encouraged to keep up with this constant deluge of new books and stuff. It's too much pressure for me. These days, my focus is on much more chill war games from other companies. Right now, that's Saga from Big Battles and Relic Blade for small ones. So I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, this is the inherent problem with competitive games, is that they are not evergreen. If you are reliant, and now of course this is me talking, not reading, if you are reliant on your game constantly staying competitive, then you need to constantly be buying product and they need to constantly be cranking out product. The problem is when you have any sort of hiccup like this or if your cycle is way too fast, such as Magic several times a year gets a new set or whatever. Apparently, um, Underworlds was getting a set once every year, once every two years, once every six months. If people stay out of the loop at all, suddenly, oh, wait, all of my stuff isn't valid anymore. So if you're only talking about competition, there's nothing else left for you. If you're not on top of the cutting edge of everything that they release, then you're no longer able to even play. And if competitiveness is the only fun you get out of the game, in other words, there's no casual play or narrative play, which of course, 
um, Underworlds does not have. That's not something that Underworlds does. It's purely competitive play. Then there's nothing to fall back on. Sure, you can still hobby. Sure, you can still collect the models. They do have some neat models, but to me, they're overpriced. One Warband is 40 bucks, and a lot of times it's like three or four models. I mean, it's like, sure, it comes with cards or whatever, but it's that's pretty pricey. My store has had a box with an ogre, like a pirate ogre, and he comes with a monkey and a snotling and I think like a bird. And it's like $45 for that box set. And I'm like, really? Like you got one ogre and then just some little creatures and it's $45. That's just ridiculous. And no wonder it's sat on the shelf for quite some time. I mean, the models are good and all of that, but it is not worth the price point. So um, our, our local friend, uh, Justin, who runs all this stuff, says, yeah, the um, this basically their gaming group they had, which was like, you know, 10 people, is now down to him and one other guy that still play Underworlds. And it's just it's just drying up. And like I said, you need to, if you're going to have a game that has any longevity, you need to have that competitive side. But you also, because because the competitive side, remember, keeps you balanced. You have to balance your game if you have any competition to it, right? So you have to deal with the competitive people, and it's actually healthy for you to do that because it makes a more balanced game in theory. But if there's nothing else to fall back on when the grind, the constant grind of staying competitive gets too much for you, you can't just fall back on the hobby. Most people are not going to be content because they want to play a game. Sure, some people only like to hobby. Sure, some people like to just paint. But that's not the majority of people, I don't believe. Most people want to paint and play. And if you're in a constant rat race to stay competitive, then you're going to burn out. And when you burn out and there's nothing else to fall back on, such as narrative or open play or whatever, then you just get out of the game. You find something else that you can be... Uh, casual with. And that's what I say about um, casual games, things that are narrative, things are, they have so much more longevity because it's no longer the grind or the hamster wheel of, oh my gosh, I got to stay right on top. I got to stay on the cutting edge. Okay. What's the meta? What's these tournaments lists that are, that are winning? Oh my God. Now it's FAQ'd. Oh, now it messed up my list. Okay. Now I got to work within these new FAQs. Oh my God, this new army just came out and they're so OP. Okay, now I got to find a counter to that. Oh my God, I do not have the time or patience in my life for that. And I, I feel like maybe a lot of you don't either. And that's why you uh, come to this more casual and narrative podcast versus something that's super competitive. So what it comes down to is competitiveness sure drives sales for a time, but it's a very, very hard thing to keep going. Because you have completely rested everything on the pillar that is winning. Competitiveness is about winning. It's not about necessarily having fun. What it is is you redefine your definition of fun as winning. It's not anything to do with... Like the other day, I played. I was playing with TJ, and I, I almost... I, I won the initiative in Age of Sigmar, but I almost just let him go first because I thought maybe I had too good of a chance of beating him. And then we discussed it and he goes, oh, no, you know, you, sh you should go. I think I'm fine. I said, OK, cool. But if we were playing hardcore competitive, I would be wanting to crush him into the ground. You know, I wouldn't be doing that thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll hamper myself so that the game is better. That is what narrative play is all about. And I mean, I used to like competitive play to a degree back when everything was much simpler. But now I just feel like it's way off the rails. 
but I'm still really enjoying Warhammer. It's just that I'm doing it in a different way. And that is the nice thing about Age of Sigmar or Warhammer or Brutality or any of those things that aren't... I mean, you could play Heroclix narratively, I guess. They don't really have the mechanics for narrative Heroclix. The best you can do for Heroclix narratively would be make a narrative list. Like, oh, all of mine are the appropriate Avengers from this time period. Or you do the Batman family and I'll do his rogues gallery, you know, something like that. I, I that would be the most compa- um, casual or narrative play that you could probably do with Heroclix. Now I used to do um, casual play narrative play with Heroclix by myself and with just James for years. We did that because we never once went to a Heroclix tournament, but we both had a bunch of Heroclix and we just loved superheroes and that sort of thing. So I did that for years before I had brutality. And that kind of leads into this whole thinking that a topic that I will probably cover next week is something that has been kind of stewing in the back of my mind. And, you know, a lot of times I like to make commentary on not just Warhammer or Underworlds or whatever, but just on the whole paradigm between competitive and casual. And there's quite a few epiphanies that I've slowly formulated in the last couple weeks. And it's been something... Have you ever had something in the back of your mind that you that kind of haunted you? It was one of those things like this mercurial idea and you slowly had to shape it and form it into an actual statement. You know, at first it's kind of like a theory. Anyway, I've got a pretty big statement to make next week and I think I will have all of my thoughts on the whole competitive versus casual. What are the impacts on the players? What are the impacts on the game? And is it good or bad? Either one. Is one better than the other one? Um, obviously, you know my bias is for casual play, but it's not just a bias, right? Um, if you just hate strawberry ice cream just because it's strawberry ice cream, that's stupid. If you hate strawberry ice cream because you're allergic to it and you break out in a rash, or you hate strawberry ice cream because you don't like the flavor, well, then you have a reason for hating it, right? Well, I don't care for competitive games, not because, oh, I just don't like competitive games. No, that's not it. It's I have reasons why I don't care for it. No, I don't hate competitive games. I mean, I'll, I still go to tournaments sometimes. But uh, I think that I've got some pretty maybe divisive things to say, and it will probably be next episode. So uh, thank you very much to Panhandle3D.com for supporting the show, and thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show, and thank you to all my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons on Patreon. I will see you next week.